Recorded live. Well, that wasn't supposed to happen. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, March 15th, 2014. People in talk show are going to have to bear with me. Matthew Watt is not here to run the board for me tonight. I have to do it myself, and, and I'm probably not that great a multitasker. I'd like to remind the people in talk show that TalkShoe is not the main venue for these programs. These programs are only simulcast on TalkShoe. Christagenia.org has four of its own streaming internet servers, and there are many more people listening there. Christagenia also has its own troll-free chat room, which is membership by request only. To yours truly, info at Christagenia.org. Once again, we shall continue with our rather slowly moving presentation of Martin Luther's treatise on the Jews and their lies, which was written in 1543. This is part five in this series. I suspect over the next maybe year and a half, two years, it'll continue into many more parts. The end of Martin Luther's treatise, I... I, I believe is a lot more enriching than the beginning. Martin Luther believed errantly that the Jews were the descendants of the Israelites of the Old Testament. That's not true. We know that from history. We also know that by corroborating history with scripture. However, Martin Luther knew that the Jews were an evil race. That their problem was well, well it, it, it was innate. It, it, was, it, it was part of them. It was genetic, although he couldn't have used that term to describe it. He knew that there was no way they could be the people of God from their fruits, but he took it for granted that their claims to being the people of God was true. That was his largest error if he'd have realized that the that the that the people called the Jews weren't Israelites, perhaps he would have treated them far differently. Because he took for granted their claims to their identity, it forced him into a universalist position. We have a um, a two seed line series also being conducted. It's already been sixteen parts. And the final part of Pragmatic Genesis, the Pragmatic Genesis portion of it, was last week with Clifton Emmerheiser. I'll be resuming that series within the next couple of weeks, and we will get into two seed line in, in the rest of the Old Testament. I also want this year to present my um, Classical Records and German Origin series. I'm hoping to do that later in the year. I had promised a call-in show in March. I'm going to reschedule that for April 12th. I apologize for that. I, I have to go to New York for a week at the beginning of April and, and um, sew up some business there. And, and it, uh, it may be my last trip to New York, God willing. And I'm going to be in New York the entire week, so 
I'm going to be back in Virginia for that week's that weekend's programs and April 12th would be an opportune time for me to do a call-in program. That's when I plan to do that. Now to commence with Martin Luther. Throughout the opening parts of this chapter, his paper, I'm sorry, Martin Luther has, unfortunately, argued against the Jews on their own terms. And primarily because he accepted the false claim of the Jews to be the legitimate offspring of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. Yet, because he understands that the Jews both rejected and were rejected by Christ, and that they are certainly reprobates who could never be worthy of his grace, he argues that the recipients of the promises of the redemption which is in Christ can no longer be the genetic Israelites but rather only whoever may choose to be a Christian, the so-called Gentiles, the people of the nations. Universalism is basically 2,000 years old. Here in the material which we are about to present, Luther continues along that same avenue which goes in the wrong direction. Because of some of the things which Christ said to the Jews, and because of the incorrect assumption that Christ was speaking to true Israelites, I have heard it said that Christ rejected the idea of salvation by race. However, the scripture says that all Israel shall be saved. The scripture says that in, the, in Yahweh shall all the seed, all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Romans 11.26, Isaiah 45.25. If Christ was rejecting salvation by race, he must have been refuting Isaiah, and Paul must be wrong. However, a closer examination of John chapter 8 shows that those who were opposed to Christ were not Israel at all. In John chapter 10, Christ told them, But you believe not, because you are not my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Salvation is indeed by race. However, Christ was really rejecting salvation by the presumption of race. The scribes and Pharisees who opposed Christ presumed to be Israelites. However, and the records attest it, they were really the children of Esau and those bad fig Canaanites of Judah about whom both Jeremiah and Malachi had prophesied and whom Paul again discussed in Romans chapter 9. Abraham's children do the works of Abraham. What are the works of Abraham? As Paul explains in Romans chapter 4, For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. The Jews rejected God because they rejected Christ, and therefore proved that they were not Abraham's true children. If they were Abraham's children, they would have believed him like Abraham did. 
Therefore, the Apostle John says in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, He that believes on the Son of God has the witness in himself. He that believes not God has made him a liar, because he believes not the record that God gave of his Son. Of course, John is talking in terms of the people of first century Judea. It cannot be taken out of that out of that context, out of the context of the promises to the children of Israel found in the Old Testament, which even Luke, in Luke chapter 1, testifies that Christ came to fulfill the promises made to the fathers. Abraham believed God that his seed would become many nations. Abraham believed that his offspring would become many nations and it was accredited to him for righteousness. If you're not one of the people of one of those of, of those nations which came into the world through Jacob Israel, if you're not one of those people, then Abraham didn't believe in you. So you can't be of the faith of Abraham no matter what you profess. If you're a nigger, a chink, a squat monster, a red Indian, sorry, Abraham didn't believe in you. And I'm not even really sorry. That's just the way it is. If God created the Adamic man in his own image and likeness, then Yahweh God created the Adamic man to respond to his word and his law. Thus Christ says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. If a bastard pretends to be of Israel, the bastard will eventually be exposed by his fruits through a rejection of the word and law of Yahweh, or at least certain elements of it. And therefore Christ told certain of the Judeans that you believe not because you are not my sheep. Ostensibly, the will of God is that his creation is discerned by their fruits because the man born from above has the capacity to act accordingly, whereas the man born of the world can never act as a true child of God. Build three Porsches and discreetly substitute the guts of an old AMC gremlin into one of them. It will not take long on the racetrack to observe that something is wrong with the hybrid. So it should be with the creation of God. Without understanding the true genetic nature of many of the Judeans, that many of them were actually Edomites and Canaanites, that's demonstrable in history. And especially those Judeans who rejected Christ, because yes, the Adamic man can be deceived, Luther was therefore forced into a universalist position which he could not avoid. And with that, we will open with the next paragraph in Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies. This is from part two of his 13, I think it's 13, part treatise. Now what does it benefit Ishmael that he is circumcised? Luther's been arguing about the Jews, as we said, on his own terms. First he argued against them for boasting of their genealogy. Now he's arguing against them for boasting in their circumcision. Now what does it benefit Ishmael that he is circumcised? What does it benefit Edom that he is circumcised? Edom, who moreover is descended from Isaac, who was set apart and not from Ishmael. 
What does it benefit Midian and his brothers, born of Keturah, that they are circumcised? They are, for all of that, not God's people, neither their descent from Abraham nor their circumcision commanded by God helps them. If circumcision does not help them in becoming God's people, how can it help the Jews? And and this, Martin Luther is building a, basically a false argument. It's an argument based on false pretenses. But he continues, For it is one and the same circumcision decreed by one and the same God, and there is one and the same Father, flesh and blood, or descent, that is common to all. There is absolute equality. There is no difference, no distinction among them all, so far as circumcision and birth are concerned. And that part is true. There is an equality amongst Abraham's sons, that they were all circumcised. They were all circumcised. They were all the children of Abraham. But there was a chosen line that was designated by Yahweh. Luther is arguing against that because he thinks that chosen line resulted in the people known as the Jews. Luther's argument does not negate the fact that Israel alone was indeed the heir to the promises manifested in Christ. Circumcision was not ever intended to benefit Ishmael, Esau, or the sons of Keturah. Rather, circumcision was imposed on all of Abraham's house, so long as Abraham lived, as a sign of the promises which God gave to Abraham. And those promises were inherited not by his other sons, but by Isaac and then by Jacob. So circumcision wasn't supposed to benefit Ishmael. It wasn't supposed to benefit Esau or Midian. That's the election of God. To continue with Martin Luther, Therefore, it is not a clever and ingenious, but a clumsy and foolish and stupid lie when the Jews boasted their circumcision before God, presuming that God should regard them graciously for that reason. Though they should certainly know from Scripture that they are not the only race circumcised in compliance with God's decree, and that they cannot, on that account, be God's special people, something more, different, and greater is necessary for that, since the Ishmaelites, the Edomites, the Midianites, and other descendants of Abraham may equally comfort themselves with this glory, even before God himself. For with regard to birth and circumcision, these are, as already said, their equals. You know, they are not their equals because Israel was not chosen for nobility of birth. So Luther's basic premise is absolutely wrong. Both Paul and James explicitly addressed the twelve tribes of Israel by race, using a racial designation. Tribe is a racial designation. Peter likewise addressed his epistles 
not to alien natives, but to the elect sojourners of the dispersion, a term which could only describe the outcasts of Israel, the lost sheep. These Peter called an elect race, a holy race, and a peculiar people in his first epistle. The apostles were not bringing the gospel to Ishmaelites and Edomites. They were bringing the gospel to the dispersions of ancient Israel. Luther, a translator of scripture, apparently took it for granted that these words regarding race and election were meaningless. It shows you how powerful the Catholic programming can be. It also shows you how powerful the blindness decreed by Yahweh God himself can be. From John chapter 15. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knows not what his Lord does. Henceforth I call you not servants means that he called them servants in the past. When did he call the apostles servants? Well, we'll see that in a few minutes. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, and that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that you love one another. The term one another in this context must be limited to those whom God has chosen. Those whom God has chosen, Christ is telling us here, should love one another. That doesn't mean they should love anybody else except those whom God has chosen. Under the old covenant, Israel was the servant race of God. That's when Christ called his apostles servants. You won't find it in the New Testament. Israel was the servant race of God and knew not what his Lord doeth. From Isaiah chapter 42. Who is blind but my servant or death as my messenger that I sent. Who is blind as he that is perfect and blind as Yahweh's servant. Seeing many things but thou observest not. Opening the ears but he heareth not. Yahweh is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. Perfect description of the children of Israel for the word of God in Isaiah chapter 42. Israel was the blind servant of Yahweh. Christ said, henceforth, I call you not servants. They weren't blind servants anymore. And he was still talking to the children of Israel. Israel was the blind servant of Yahweh, yet Yahweh nevertheless chose Israel, and that has not changed. Two chapters later, Isaiah 44, Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith Yahweh that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, Who will help thee? Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, 
and Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Luther, of course, was blind to the identity of Israel. Perhaps, we continue with Luther, perhaps the Jews will declare that the Israelites and Edomites, etc., do not observe the rite of circumcision as strictly as they do. Luther here is creating sophistic arguments. He continues under the false premise that circumcision is the covenant. Circumcision is not the covenant. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant. You could go circumcise yourself. It's not going to bring you into the covenant of God. The covenant of God was given to Abraham and his seed as a sign of the promises which he made to Abraham. To continue with Luther. In addition to cutting off the foreskin of the male child, the Jews force the skin back on the little penis and tear it open with sharp fingernails as one reads in their books. I'd say Luther shouldn't have been reading their books. Thus they cause extraordinary pain to the child without and against the command of God so that the father who should really be happy over the circumcision, stands there and weeps as his child's cries pierce his heart. We answer roundly that such an addendum is their own invention. Yes, it was inspired by the accursed devil and is in contradiction to God's command, since Moses says in Deuteronomy 4.2 and 12.32, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it. With such a devilish supplement, they ruin their circumcision, so that, in the sight of God, no other nation practices circumcision less than they, since with such wanton disobedience they append and practice this damnable supplement. Now, of course, a lot of Luther's gripes against the Jews were pretty much on target. That doesn't mean he should have been arguing from a universalist position. Luther need not argue with the Jews on these terms at all, regardless of how repulsive their practices. However, Luther cannot refute the Jews on truly scriptural grounds because he, by accepting their claims to be Israel, if he refuted them on scriptural grounds, would only be found supporting them. Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, that brethren, I speak as befits a man, even a validated covenant of man, no one sets aside or makes additions to for himself. Now to Abraham the promises have been spoken, and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, as of many, but as of one, and to your offspring, which are the anointed. Now this I say, a covenant validated beforehand by Yahweh, which the law which arrived after 430 years does not invalidate, by which the promise is left idle. For if from law... The inheritance is no longer from promise. But to Abraham, through a promise, Yahweh has given it freely. Paul is explaining, and this is lost on mainstream translators and commentators who believe that the seed 
is a singular seed, Yahshua Christ, even though the promise was in Isaac, the promise to Abraham in Isaac, in, Yah, in Isaac would your name be called, and not to Christ. Paul is saying that these other offspring of Abraham, the children of Keturah, Ishmael, Esau, they are excluded from the promise because the promise is to one offspring, and that's Jacob, from which come the twelve tribes of Israel. The promise is ex exclusive to them. Back to Luther. Now let us see what Moses himself says about circumcision. In Deuteronomy 10.16 he says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn, etc. Dear Moses, what do you mean? Does it not suffice that they are circumcised physically? They are set apart from all other nations by this holy circumcision and made a holy people of God. And you rebuke them for stubbornness against God. You belittle their holy circumcision. You revile the holy circumcised people of God. You should venture to talk like that today in their synagogues. If there were not stones conveniently near, they would resort to mother dirt to b drive you from their midst, even if you were worth ten Moseses. Well, Luther has the nature of the Jews right. But the circumcision of the heart as an admonition only belongs to the children of Israel. From Deuteronomy chapter 30, from verse 1, And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call to them, that call them to mind among all the nations where Yahweh thy God has driven thee. So even though Israel is amongst other nations, the admonition is still to Israel. And shalt return unto Yahweh thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee to this day. Thou and thy children with all thine heart and with all thy soul. That then Yahweh thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all the nations, whither Yahweh thy God has scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out unto the outmost parts of the earth, from thence will Yahweh thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. So no matter where Israel is scattered, it's Israel that will be gathered. Nobody else. And Yahweh thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed and thou shalt possess it. And he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. And Yahweh thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love Yahweh thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. The words of Yahweh in Deuteronomy are absolutely congruent to the promises concerning Israel in relation to the new test to the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31 where it says behold the days come saith Yahweh that I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. The circumcision of the heart is a promise from God to the children of Israel. It was never promised to Gentiles. It was never promised to non-Israelites. It was promised to the nations which were promised to come from Abraham's loins. And Abraham believed that. Romans chapter 4. Paul went to those nations. That's what he's explaining in Romans chapter 4. Paul knew from ancient history exactly where the children of Israel were. Martin Luther, he still doesn't, he, he still doesn't know it. He might know it now, but he didn't know it in 1543. Back to Luther. He also, supposing that the Old Testament is talking to the Jews, he also chides them in Leviticus 26.41, saying, If then their, their uncircumcised heart is humbled, etc. Be careful, Moses. Do you know whom you are speaking to? You are talking to a noble, chosen, holy, circumcised people of God. And you dare say that they have uncircumcised hearts. That is much worse than having a seven times uncircumcised flesh. For an uncircumcised heart can have no God. And to such the circumcision of the flesh is of no avail. Only a circumcised heart can produce the people of God. And it can do this even when physical circumcision is absent or is impossible. As it was for the children of Israel during their forty years in the desert. Now, this is not incorrect, the circumcision of the heart and the circumcision of the flesh were all, however, only for the children of Israel. It doesn't matter who else gets circumcised. It doesn't matter if Abraham circumcised Ishmael. Ishmael believed he was still excluded from the covenants by the word of God. It doesn't matter if he was circumcised or not. It's collateral. Collateral damage, collateral benefit, it, it doesn't matter. Ishmael is neutral in relation to the covenants. It doesn't matter if a Jew is circumcised because he's not a child of Israel. Luther didn't understand that. Back to Luther. Thus saith, thus Jeremiah also takes them to task. Well, the basic premise is wrong because Jeremiah isn't taking the Edomite Jews of the first century to task. Jeremiah is taking Israel and Judah back in the 7th century BC to task in Jeremiah chapter 4. 
Thus Jeremiah also takes them to task, saying in chapter 4-4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it. Jeremiah, you heretic, you seducer and false prophet. This is Luther speaking rhetorically, right? How dare you tell that holy, circumcised people of God to circumcise themselves to the Lord? Do you mean to imply that they were hitherto circumcised physically to the devil, as if God did not esteem their holy physical circumcision? And are you furthermore threatening them with God's wrath as an eternal fire if they do not circumcise their hearts? But they do not mention such circumcision of the heart in their prayer, nor do they praise or thank God for it with as much as a single letter. And you dare to invalidate their holy circumcision of the flesh, making it liable to God's wrath and the eternal fire. I advise you not to enter their synagogue. All devils might dismember and devour you there. If Luther only knew the truth. If Luther only knew the truth that it was the children of Israel who were being told to give up this reliance on rituals and to actually turn to obedience and godly ways. The ancient children of Israel relied on rituals for their righteousness and they were put out by God. They were put away. They were cast off. They were taken away in the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations. The first, well, well, the second century B.C. Judeans who were the remnant that kept, that held on to these traditions, they folded the Edomites and all the Canaanites of the land of the Canaan into Judaism. And those Edomites and Canaanites were the people clinging to these rituals for their justification, for the most part, at the time of Christ. They were the Judaizers who sought, as Paul said, to circumcise the believers of the nations, not to turn them to righteousness, but so that they could boast in their flesh. Luther didn't see that. However, Luther knew that the Jews were devils. And yet he still believed they were Israelites. That's a conflict. That's a cognitive disconnect. That's a cognitive disconnect which is only explained as it came from God himself. The 16th century was simply not the time for the awakening of Israel. Neither was the 20th. But we pray that it comes soon. Israel, true Israel, is still blind. The Jews have never been blind. They know they're devils. Back to Luther. In Jeremiah 6.10 we read further, Their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Well, well, my dear Jeremiah, Luther again speaking rhetorically, You are dealing you are surely dealing roughly and inconsiderately with the noble, chosen, holy, circumcised people of God. 
Luther being rather sarcastic. Do you mean to say that such a holy nation has uncircumcised ears, and what is far worse, that they are unable to hear? Is that not tantamount to saying that they are not God's people? Well, Luther was close there. (laughs) For he who cannot hear or bear to hear God's word is not God's people. And if they are not God's people, then they are the devil's people. And then neither circumcising nor skinning nor scraping will avail. For God's sake, Jeremiah, stop talking like that. How can you despise and condemn holy circumcision so horribly that you separate the chosen circumcised holy people of God and consign them to the devil as banished and damned? Do they not praise God for having set them apart through circumcision both from the devil and from all the other nations and for making them a holy and peculiar people? Yeah, he has spoken blasphemy. Crucify him, crucify him. Martin Luther being sarcastic in describing the words of Jeremiah. Luther was so close to the truth. He was so close to the truth here, but he never reached the finish line. Luther even understood that if the Jews were the devil's people, then indeed they could do nothing. Nothing they could do could save them. He was right there. He was right there. That This is the threshold of understanding. But he never took it a step further. He never said, well, these are definitely the devil's people, but why? If he'd have asked why, maybe he'd have gone back and examined first century history, first century BC history, the history of Judea leading up to the time of Christ. Maybe he'd have realized that the Judeans, the Maccabees, went out and conquered all these cities of the Canaanites and the Edomites and forcibly conversed them to Judea- converted them to Judaism. And once they were converted to Judaism, that paved the way for Herod the Great to eventually usurp the kingdom by bribing Mark Antony. And once Herod the Great, the Jews call him the Great, but once Herod the, the Edomite bastard became king, he used the priesthood and the offices of Judea for his political cronies, for his fellow Edomites. He filled it with Edomites. They were the people Christ contended with. If Luther had understood that, if he'd have gone back and examined that, he was right there. He was right there. The Jews didn't believe God. They must have been the devil's people. He, he was right there. They certainly were. It just wasn't time for that awakening. That's the only way to explain this. Because Luther was a pretty intelligent man. He was only given to making sophistic arguments against the Jews, ostensibly because he didn't have the truth. Back to Luther, briefly. In chapter 9.25, Jeremiah says further, Behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh, when I will punish all those who are circumcised, but yet uncircumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert. 
For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. A little earlier in this argument, Luther said that the Edomites were circumcised, where he said, Now, what does it benefit Ishmael that he is circumcised, and what does it benefit Edom that he is circumcised? These conflicts will always be created when one has to fashion false arguments, and Luther would not have had to do so if he only realized that the Jews were truly not of Israel, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 9. Back to Luther. In the face of this, what becomes of the arrogant boast of circumcision by reason of which the Jews claim to be a holy nation, set apart from other peoples? Here, God's word lumps them together with the heathen and uncircumcised. Luther taking for granted that the, that the Jews are Judah. And threatens the same visitation for both. Moreover, the best part of Israel, the noble, royal tribe of Judah is mentioned here. And after that, the entire house of Israel. Worst of all, he declares that the heathen are, to be sure, uncircumcised according to the flesh, but the Judah, Edom, and Israel, who are circumcised according to the flesh, are much viler than the heathen, since they have an uncircumcised heart. And this, as said before, is far worse than uncircumcised flesh. Luther is right that the children of Israel apart from God, are indeed no better than the other people, the other beasts. However, the Jews are not Israel, and can never be any better than beasts. Peter was writing to the Christians of the lost sheep of Israel, when he called them a holy nation. Here Luther is poking fun at the idea of a holy nation, but Peter wrote that in the New Testament, and Peter was not writing to Jews. Paul wrote to the Christians of Colossae, his epistle to the Colossians. He wrote thus, referring to Christ, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's the circumcision of the heart which Yahweh promised Israel all the way back in Deuteronomy. The true Israelites, by accepting the gospel of Christ and the accompanying appeal to keep his commandments, they are those of uncircumcised hearts. You don't believe Christ, though, and then become an Israelite. That's not what the gospel says. You must be an Israelite and then come to Christ. My sheep hear my voice. How could they be his sheep? Before they heard his voice? Only by being of the children of Israel. Back to Luther. These and similar passages prove irrefutably that the Jews' arrogance and boast of circumcision over against the uncircumcised Gentiles are null and void, and, unless accompanied by something else, deserves nothing but God's wrath. And we see from Luther 
how well well I can't say that because the um I don't know the German the translator may have used the term Gentiles and it'd be interesting to see what the German said God says that they have an uncircumcised heart but the Jews do not pay attention to such a foreskin of the heart rather they think that God should behold their proud circumcision in the flesh and hear their arrogant boasts over against all Gentiles who are unable to boast of circumcision these blind, miserable people do not see that God condemns their uncircumcised heart so clearly and explicitly in these verses, and thereby condemns their physical circumcision together with their boasting and their prayer. They go their way like fools, making the foreskins of their hearts steadily thicker with such haughty boasts before God and their contempt for all other people. By virtue of such futile, arrogant circumcision in the flesh, they presume to be God's only people, until the foreskin of their heart has become thicker than an iron mountain, and they can no longer hear, see, or feel their own clear scripture, which they read daily with blind eyes overgrown, with a pelt thicker than the bark of an oak tree. The children of Israel are God's only people, but none of them are Jews. In Romans chapter 4, Paul explains that Abraham was uncircumcised when he received the promises. And then Paul says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, in other words, that all the believers in the word of Christ would descend from Abraham. And then he says, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of, uh, I'm sorry, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of Abraham our father, which he had yet being uncircumcised. Paul's not saying that other people are going to be believers aside from Abraham's seed, Abraham's offspring, which Paul also explains at length in that same chapter, in that same paragraph. The apostles decided that the children of Israel coming to Christ did not need to be circumcised at Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and 24. That's what Paul's saying here. Abraham believed before he was circumcised. Paul recognized that circumcision was a ritual of the law, which it had indeed become long after the time of Abraham, for which we may see Exodus chapter 12, Leviticus chapter 12, Joshua chapter 5, for examples. Paul understood that in Christ, to embrace the rituals of the law was to try to effect one's own salvation. And therefore, he said in Galatians chapter 5, that in the freedom, freedom from the rituals, freedom from the Levitical 
rituals of the Old Testament. In the freedom in which Christ has set us free, you stand fast indeed, and do not again be tangled in a yoke of bondage. Yes, the Galatians, they were once bound by those rituals, because the Galatians were part of the people descended from the Israelites of the Assyrian deportations. That's why Paul tells them that they descended from Isaac. That's why Paul tells them that the law was their schoolmaster. Behold, I, Paul, say to you, Galatians 5.2, that if you should be circumcised, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And I testify again to every man getting himself circumcised. Now, now, that's every man who is circumcised in the King James Version. I'm reading from the Christiania New Testament. That verb is a verb of the medium voice. For verbs of the medium voice, the subject the, and, and the object are the same. The, the initiator of the action is also the recipient of the action. So it should properly be translated. And I testify again to every man getting himself circumcised. Because you can't help it if you're circumcised. If your parents believed some Jew doctor when you were six weeks, six days old, six days old, and, and, and I've been through this, right? If some parents believed some, if some Jew doctor and get this six-day-old baby circumcised unnecessarily, it's not that kid's fault. That kid's not obligated to do the entire law. That child had no control. Paul's talking about the Judaizers who were trying to force Christians to, to accept the rituals of the Old Testament and continue in them. That's who he's addressing from Galatians chapter 1. That's who Paul's talking about. Men that get themselves circumcised. Men that become convinced by the Jews that they should follow these things. And I testify again to every man getting himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. In other words, once you rely on rituals, you're making rituals your way to salvation. Faith in Christ... We understand that he has saved us if indeed we are of the children of Israel. And he, his grace is free and his mercy is free. That's the free will gift and the liberty that the apostles spoke of. Of course, that does not give us license to sin. And that's a, an argument which Paul addressed at great length in his epistle to the Romans. Chapter 2, chapter 3 chapter 4, 5, 6, that, that's all about that. Paul says, well, do we sin because grace is, is bountiful? Well, of course not. May it not be. Of course we don't sin more to, to increase grace. That's crazy. And Paul basically says that that's crazy. Both Peter and James also mention this liberty from the rituals of the law. Luther would have done better, he'd have done a lot better, to argue against the Jews, not with his own wisdom, because all of these arguments of, of Luther's are basically sophistic arguments. Arguments that he concocted 
in order to try to discredit the Jews. He'd have done much better by simply stating what the apostles had already stated. That if the Jews rejected Christ, that by itself proved that they were not of God. And we'll talk about that a little more shortly. If God is to give ear, going back to Martin Luther, if God is to give ear to their prayers and praises and accept them, they must surely first purge their synagogues, mouths, and hearts of such blasphemous, shameful, false, and deceitful boasting and arrogance. Now, now this is absolutely not a Christian argument. This is a sophistic argument. Yahshua Christ came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And they're all saved. But those lost sheep should accept Christ and keep his commandments. So, if you were talking to lost sheep of the house of Israel, if you wanted to teach them what they had to do for God to accept them, the first thing they should do is accept Christ. Luther's not telling them that. He's speaking to them on worldly terms. He's arguing with the Jews on their own terms. You can't beat the Jews arguing with them on their own terms. Did you ever read any of the Talmud? That they'll twist every argument a million ways and pervert it into something beneficial to them. They're experts at it. You don't argue with the Jews on their terms. Only Christ can argue with the Jews on his terms. You simply believe and repeat the words of Christ. That's all it takes. And the apostles. Back to Luther. If God is to give ear to their prayers and praises and accept them, they must surely first purge their synagogues, mouths, and hearts of all such blasphemous, shameless, shameful, false, and deceitful boasting and arrogance. Otherwise, they will only go from bad to worse and arouse God's anger evermore against themselves. For he who would pray before God dare not confront him with haughtiness and lying. He dare not praise only himself, condemn all others, claim to be God's only people, and execrate all the others as they do. As David says in Psalm 5, verse 4, For thou art not a God who delights in wickedness, evil may not sojourn with thee. The boastful may not stand before thy eyes. Thou hatest all evildoers, thou destroyest those who speak lies. The Lord abhors bloodthirsty and deceitful men. But rather, as verse 7 tells us, I, through the abundance of thy steadfast love, will enter thy house. I will worship toward the holy temple in fear of thee. Why is Luther arguing with the Jews on Old Testament terms as if the Jews are the people of the Old Testament? The words of Christ demand that God never accept the Jews under any circumstances, no matter what they do. Christ insists that God will never accept the Jews because Christ said explicitly that only through him can men come to God. From John chapter 14. Jesus from the King James. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father except by me. If you had known me, you should have known my father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Speaking to his disciples. 
from John chapter 16. These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. They shall, they shall, meaning the Jews, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yeah, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does God a service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. Now, how could Christ say that of Israelites? If God says of the Israelites, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, how could the Jews who opposed him be Israel? They can't be. They have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said, un I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. Now Luther apparently did not remember these things. Or he would simply rather formulate his own sophistic arguments. And we shouldn't do that. We should teach the word of God with simplicity. That's what Christians should do. The New Testament is the indictment of the enemies of God. The New Testament is all we need to indict the Jews. They are indeed the devil's people. There's no recovery for them. There's no arguing with them. Luther had to address them in order to convince his Christian churchmen, or that's what he tried to do. That failed too. The proof of that fa of, of the failure of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a great man. Don't get me wrong. He understood a lot of excellent things. He was a daring man. He was bold. He was brave. He stood up to the Catholic Church, the, the beast of his time. But he was wrong because he should have used the New Testament and the words of Christ to indict the Jews. There's no way. They could ever be God's people. And that should have been enough for his churchmen. He failed. Look at the Lutheran church today. The Lutheran church today is no different than any of these other churches. They worship the Jews. The Jews that are God. Just like the rest of these Babylonian whore churches. Back to Martin Luther. This psalm applies to all men, whether circumcised or not, but particularly and especially to the Jews. Well, well, the only psalm that might apply to the Jews is the one that talks about the crucifixion of Christ and the Jews are doing the crucifying. The power of the dog. I'll get back to Luther. But particularly and especially to the Jews, for whom it was especially given and composed, as was all the rest of Scripture also. And they are more masterfully portrayed in it than all other heathen. For they are the ones who constantly have pursued godless ways, idolatry, false doctrine, and who have had uncircumcised hearts, as Moses himself and all the prophets cry out and lament. But in all this they always claimed to be pleasing to God, and they slew all the prophets on this account. They are the malicious, stiff-necked people that would not be converted from evil to good works by the preaching, reproof, and teaching of the prophets. The scriptures bear witness to this everywhere. 
and they still claim to be God's servants and to stand before him. They are the boastful, arrogant rascals who to the present day can do no more than boast of their race and lineage, praise only themselves, and disdain and curse all the world in their synagogues, prayers, and doctrines. Despite this, they imagine that in God's eyes they rank as his dearest children. Well, the Jews do not imagine to be God's children. Rather, they only pretend to be God's children. However, it is easy to get the evil of the Jews confused for the sins of Israel. That's what Luther has done here. The Israelites were told that if they did not rid themselves of all the Canaanites, that they would begin to emulate the way of the Canaanites. The Jews, in fact, are the very Canaanites who the children of Israel had been emulating. It was, according to the words of Christ in Luke chapter 11 and John chapter 8, the children of God's enemies who killed both the prophet, who both killed the prophets and later opposed Christ in the temple. And even Paul testifies again, testifies to that. He says that the Judeans, he references the Judeans who both killed Christ and the prophets and are contrary to all men. There's a word in that passage in the King James that's added to the text that stands for their own. That word their own does not belong in that passage at all. Back to Luther. They are real liars and bloodhounds who have not only continually perverted and falsified all of Scripture with their mendacious glosses from the beginning until the present day. Their heart's most ardent sighing and yearning and hoping is set on the day on which they can deal with us Gentiles as they did with the Gentiles in Persia at the time of Esther. Oh, how fond they are of the book of Esther, which is so beautifully attuned to their bloodthirsty, vengeful, murderous yearning and hope. The sun has never shone on a more bloodthirsty and vengeful people than they are who imagine that they are God's people who have been commissioned and commanded to murder and to slay the Gentiles. In fact, the most important thing that they expect of their Messiah is that he will murder and kill the entire world with his sword. That's true, just in a different context. They treated us Christians in this manner at the very beginning throughout all the world. They would still like to do this if they had the power, and not, and often enough have made the attempt for which they have got their snouts boxed lustily. It's a good thing Martin Luther never saw Dresden and Hamburg. The commission by God in the land of Canaan was not to kill Gentiles. For the children of Israel were actually only told, well, were actually told not to mistreat the other people of the Genesis 10 nations. Children of Israel who were never told to kill Persians or Assyrians, to kill the Syrians or the Egyptians. Never. Rather, they were only to exterminate the nations of Canaan. Why is Luther arguing with the Jews? based on Jewish teachings. Why don't he argue with them based on Scripture? The nations of Canaan had all become perverted bastards, mixing with the Kenites and Rephaim and others. 
Today's Jews are those very Canaanites whom the children of Israel were supposed to exterminate, and they failed. Luther admits the Jews are liars, yet he blindly accepts the Jewish claims to be Israel. That's a totally cognitive disconnect. Today's secular so-called white nationalists, those idiots do the same thing. They know the Jews are liars, but they accept their claims about the Old Testament. That makes no sense whatsoever. Luther sees what is wrong with the book of Esther, but nevertheless accepted it as a book of the canon, which it should not be. Luther understood the mistreatment of Christians by Jews, and he missed the words of Christ which warned Christians that they would be persecuted by those who rejected him, who had not God from John 16 verse 3 and these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me Christ could not have said that of the children of Israel but rather he said of the Jews in John chapter 10 you do not believe me because you are not my sheep he said of the children of Israel in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. My sheep hear my voice. There's a lot of cognitive disconnects in Martin Luther's thinking because he continued to accept the lies of the Jews that they were the children of Israel. It doesn't correlate with the New Testament not one bit back to Martin Luther we can perhaps enlarge on this subject later but let us now return to their false lying boast regarding circumcision these shameful liars are well aware that they are not the exclusive people of God, even if they did possess circumcision to the exclusion of all other nations. They also know that the foreskin is no obstacle to being a people of God, and still they brazenly strut before God, lie and boast about being God's only people by reason of their physical circumcision, unmindful of the circumcision of the heart. Against this are the weighty scriptural examples. In the first place, we adduce Job, who, as they say, descended from Nahor. And let me say here that Luther is citing the rabbis, and the claim is unsubstantiated. But we pointed out in the very first installment of this series, in the beginning of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies, that he had actually taken to quoting the books written by certain converso Jews and using the arguments in those books against the Jews. Arguments he learned from converso Jews. Here's another one. This is might well be a reason for a lot of Luther's cognitive dissonance. We deduce Job, who, as they say, descended from Nahor, 
God did not impose circumcision on him and his heirs. And yet his book shows clearly that there were very few great saints in Israel who were the equal of him and of his people. Nor did the prophet Elisha oblige Naaman of Syria to become un- to become circumcised. And yet he was sanctified and, be- and became a child of God and undoubtedly many others with him. I don't know where Luther got some of this stuff. First, most identity Christians believe that Job was not an Israelite, that he lived long before Israel was established in the land of Canaan. I'm not going to debate that here one way or another. It's immaterial. Does the Bible tell us that Solomon was circumcised? That there's a million great men in Scripture that the Bible doesn't tell us precisely that they were circumcised. What if one of them skipped that day? Well, we don't know. Why would, and and my point, that's a ridiculous argument because of the law, but my point is this. Why would the Bible tell us if Job was circumcised or if he wasn't? If he was an Israelite, the Bible wouldn't tell us because circumcision isn't part of the scope of the story in Job. That's what I'm driving at. You can't really tell from the book of Job whether Job was circumcised, and it really don't matter. So that argument is just, what? well, it's a moot point as far as I'm concerned. Naaman the Syrian, this is even worse. Naaman the Syrian, he was cleansed of his leprosy. But nowhere in the accounts of Naaman the Syrian, as it is provided in 2 Kings chapter 5, does the scripture say that Naaman somehow became a child of God? That is Martin Luther's contrivance. He made that up. And it's dishonest. It's dishonest. Where does it say that Naaman the Syrian became a child of God when he was cleansed of his leprosy? It doesn't. I have no idea what Luther might be basing that supposition upon. It's not scriptural. It's typical of all those who maintain a universalist position, but it's not scriptural. In truth, Naaman the Syrian, being a descendant of Aram, was a Shemai, descended from Noah. He was indeed a child of God, but he was a child of God because he was a descendant of Adam, who was the son of God. Luke 3.38, Acts 17.28. He wasn't a child of God because he was cleansed of his leprosy. Maybe he was cleansed of his leprosy because he was a child of God. Luther just made that up. It's typical of universalists to just make stuff up. Back to Luther. Furthermore, there stands the whole of the prophet Jonah, who converted Nineveh to God and preserved it together with kings, princes, lords, land, and people. Yet, did not circumcise these people. Actually, he converted Nineveh to repentance not to God. Similarly, Daniel converted the great kings and peoples of Babylon and Persia, such as Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Darius, etc. I don't think so, because the Bible tells us that many of these people were still worshipping their pagan idols, but that Daniel would not worship their pagan idols. And yet they remained Gentiles, uncircumcised, and did not become Jews. Here we see that Luther has another cognitive disconnect. 
Are Jews a race or are they a religion? If they're a race, how do you become a member of a race by circumcision? You can't. So they must be a religion. But then again, in other places, he attests that they're a race. If they're Israelites, they're a race. So Luther has a... He's confused about what... Well, even what a Jew is. Earlier, back to Luther, Joseph instructed Pharaoh the king, his princes, and his people. As Psalm 105.22 informs us, yet he left them uncircumcised. Why do you leave them uncircumcised? Because circumcision was a sign of the covenant to Abraham and his descendants. So why would Joseph want to circumcise Pharaoh? Why would... Daniel want to circumcise Cyrus. That, that, that this whole argument is sheer sophistry. Martin Luther was a great man in a lot of respects. This isn't one of them. He goes on to say, This I say, these hardened and inveterate liars know, and yet they stress circumcision so greatly, as though no one circumcised person could be a child of God. Well, Adam wasn't circumcised, so why doesn't Luther argue with the Jews and refute them on biblical grounds? To continue, and whenever they seduce a Christian, they uh, try to alarm him so that he will be circumcised. Subsequently, they approach God and exult in their prayer that they have brought us to the people of God through circumcision as though this were a precious deed. They disdain, despise, and curse the foreskin on us as an ugly abomination which prevents us from becoming God's people while their circumcision, they claim, affects all. What will, of course, the Jews want everybody to be circumcised so that Jews can hide and sleep with our women. That's why that's why they foisted circumcision on us through when they couldn't do it through religious means. They did it through the control of the medical profession when Christians turned to sorcery and started using doctors instead of relying on God. All of these non-Israelites whom Luther mentions here were men of other Adamic Genesis 10 nations. There's nothing wrong with any of them, except that they were simply not from the chosen line of Jacob. Circumcision was a sign for the chosen line of Jacob that the Jews absconded in the 2nd century B.C. These nations have now ceased to exist because the racial integrity of those nations was destroyed, God giving them up to his enemies. Isaiah 43.3 Israel was promised to inherit the earth. They did and they shall. Back to Luther. What is God to do with such prayer and praise, which they bring forth together with their coarse blasphemous lying, contrary to all scripture, as already stated? He will indeed hear them and bring them back to their country. I mean that if they were dwelling in heaven, such boasts, prayers, praise, and lies about circumcision alone would hurl them instantly into the abyss of hell. I have already written about this against the Sabbatarians. Therefore, dear Christian, be on your guard against such damnable people 
whom God has permitted to sink into such profound abominations and lies, for all they do and say must be sheer lying, blasphemy, and malice, however fine it may look. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, but are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Peter tells us that the devil walks about as a lion seeking whom he may devour. Christ in the Revelation says, the devil will cast some of you into prison in his messages to the seven churches. These devils mentioned by Peter and Christ, they're not demons with pitchforks. They're lying Jews. The Jews are the devil in the New Testament. The Jews and all of those who related to them. The Edomite Jews, those who rejected Christ. Luther should have simply taken those words literally and believed them like Abraham believed God. Back to Luther. But you may ask, of what use then is circumcision? Or why did God command it so strictly? We answer, let the Jews fret about that while it never belonged to the Jews. What does it matter to us Gentiles? It was not imposed on us, as you have heard, nor do we stand in need of it. But we can be God's people without it, just as the people in Nineveh, in Babylon, in Persia, and in Egypt were. And and this too is an innovation. Because those nations are of Adam, that makes them God's children. But, that does not give them a a share in a special relationship which God chose to have with the children of Israel. And Luther continues, And no one can prove that God ever commanded a prophet or a Jew to circumcise the Gentiles. Therefore they should not harass us with their lies and idolatry. If they claim to be so smart and wise as to instruct and circumcise us Gentiles, Let them first tell us what purpose circumcision serves and why God commanded it so strictly. This they owe us, but they will not do it until they return to their home in Jerusalem again. That is to say, when the devil ascends into heaven. This is pretty good. For when they assert that God enjoined circumcision for the purpose of sanctifying them, saving them, making them God's people, they are lying atrociously, as you have heard. For Moses and all the prophets testified that circumcision did not even help those for whom it was commanded, since they were of uncircumcised hearts. How then should it help us for whom it was not commanded? Luther, again, imagining himself to be a Gentile and Christians not to be Israelites. As if anybody but Israelites could be a Christian. It's interesting that Luther's words shed light 
on what must have been a professed desire of the Jews for a homeland in Palestine in his time and an interpretation of scripture in that manner. This desire was expressed 300 years later in what is now called Zionism. It is more interesting that Luther equated the return of the Jews to Palestine as when the devil ascends into heaven. For the prophet Malachi wrote about that same thing in the first chapter of his prophecy. And I quote from verse 4. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom Yahweh has indignation forever. Luther was indeed close to the truth, and he thought he had it, but he didn't quite have it. If he'd realized the Jews were Edom, and not Israel, maybe he would have understood Malachi, because that very same thing is happening today as the Jews do have control of Palestine. Yet like Luther, when men feel that they know the truth, they often stop learning, preventing themselves from progress. Back to Luther. But to speak for us Christians, we know very well why it was given or what purpose it served. However, no Jew knows this, and even when we tell him, it is just like addressing a stump or a stone. They will not desist from their boasting and their pride, that is, from their lies. They insist that they are in the right. God must be a liar, and he must be in error. Therefore, let them go their way and lie, as their fathers have done from the beginning." Why didn't Luther get that? He quoted it, but why didn't he understand it? Only the will of God explains that. But St. Paul teaches us in Romans 3 that when circumcision is performed as a kind of work, it cannot make holy or save, nor was it meant to do so. Nor does it damn the uncircumcised Gentiles as the Jews mendaciously and blasphemously say. Rather, he says, circumcision is of great value in this way, that they were entrusted with the word of God. That is the point. There it is said, there it is found. Circumcision was given and instituted to enfold and to preserve God's word and his promise. This means that circumcision should not be useful or sufficient as a work in itself. But those who possess circumcision should be bound by this sign, covenant, or sacrament to obey and to believe God and his words, and to transmit all this to their descendants. In response to that, I'd like to read from parts of Galatians. From Galatians 2.21 I do not frustrate the grace of God, for it is for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And now from Galatians 
Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law which given, which could have given life, verily, righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture has concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe, meaning all who were under the law that believe. But before faith came, we, Paul and the Galatians, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, if you were first under the law and under the circumcision. And now, under Christ. It starts back there with Israel. Israelites under the law. Israelites under the circumcision. The law was their schoolmaster. Because only Israel had the law. To bring them to Christ. Paul talking about himself and the Galatians. And once we get to Christ, that shows that we are children of God through the faith in Christ. If we reject Christ, we're spurious. We're not really Israelites. We're not really children of God. We are actually Edomites, the vessels of destruction. Canaanites, as Daniel said in Susanna, Oh, thou seed of Canaan! and not of Judah. Luther did not understand that the Christian nations of Europe descended, for the most part, from the original dispersions of the children of Israel. All of Israel and Judah were kept under the law, and no one else. And it would be manifested who the children of God were when they were brought to Christ. Those who rejected Christ are spurious vessels of destruction. Back to Luther. But where such a final cause or reason for circumcision no longer obtained, circumcision as a mere work, no longer was to enjoy validity or value, all the more so if the Jews should patch or attach another final clause or explanation to it. This is also borne out by the words in Genesis 17. I will be your God, and in token of this you shall bear my sign upon your flesh. Referring to Genesis 17, verses 8 and 11. This expresses the same thought found in St. Paul's statement that circumcision was given so that one should hear or obey God's word. And let me say there that Luther seems to be interpreting 1 Corinthians 7.19 where Paul said that circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but keeping the commandments of God. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant that you would be obedient to God.
under the old covenant. Back to Luther. For when God's word is no longer heard or kept, then he is surely no longer our God, since we in this life must comprehend and have God solely through his word. This wretched life cannot bear and endure him in his brilliant majesty. As he says in Exodus chapter 36, Man shall not see me and live. Let me say that Yahweh is not our God, as Luther calls him. Yahweh is not our God to anyone but the true offspring of the children of Israel. All the other Genesis 10 nations, even though they are descendants of Adam, and this Paul says in chapter 17 of Acts, even though they are also children of God, God gave them up. God gave them up, as Paul explains in that very same chapter 17 of Acts, to see if they would seek him, and they didn't. They all went into perdition. They all followed after idolatry. And God chose the children of Israel and recognized them as children, which is the sonship or the adoption, as it's called in the King James Version, of Israel. Nobody from, that's not from the Adamic race can be included at all. But God only recognized, out of the Adamic race, he only recognized the children of Israel as his children. Explicitly in Isaiah chapter 14, and also in Amos chapter 3, at verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities, speaking exclusively to the children of Israel. And therefore, no one else can claim to be chosen except Israel. As Yahweh says to the dispersion of Israel in Isaiah chapter 49 from verse 7, Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also, princes also shall worship, because of Yahweh that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee, speaking exclusively to the children of of Israel. Therefore, only the children of Israel can actually claim to be children of God or chosen by God, according to the scripture. There are innumerable, back to Martin Luther, there are innumerable examples throughout all of scripture which show what cause or purpose the Jews assigned to circumcision. For as often as God wanted to speak with them through the prophets, whether about the Ten Commandments in which he reproved them, or about the promise of future help, they were always obdurate. Or as the quoted verses from Moses and Jeremiah testify, they were of uncircumcised hearts and ears. They always claimed to do the right and proper thing, while the prophets, 
that is God himself whose word they preached always did the wrong and the evil thing Luther's not saying the prophets did the wrong and evil thing Luther's saying that it's the attitude of the people that the prophets did the wrong and evil thing the reading there is a little difficult therefore the Jews slew them all and they have never yet allowed any to die unpersecuted and uncondemned with the exception of a few at the time of David, Hezekiah and Josiah the entire course of the history of Israel and Judah is pervaded by blasphemy of God's word, by persecution, derision, and murder of the prophets. Judging them by history, these people must be called wanton murderers of the prophets and enemies of God's word. Whoever reads the Bible cannot draw any other conclusion. Well, this describes not the Jews... This describes the history of the white race under the influence of the Jews. Or I should say, under the influence of the ancient Canaanites. And we see that same thing again manifest today. As the Israelites of Christendom, as Christian Israel, is influenced in like manner by the Jews today so were the ancient Israelites influenced in like manner by the Canaanites in Palestine Luther he had no experience in that in Luther's time for the most part the Jews were still contained they weren't free in an open society which didn't happen until the 19th century Luther did not have the experience required to see the phenomenon made manifest. What phenomenon? How bad a society can get when the devil roams freely amongst it. How bad European society could be when the Jews had liberty to do as they please, to say as they please, to go where they please, to write their vile books, to play their vile theater and vaudeville and television and influence our people. Luther didn't see Christendom in that light because he didn't live in that period. So Luther really couldn't. If Luther could have seen that, maybe he could have figured out, yeah, White people, these Europeans, they can be that bad. Today, most Europeans and most Americans who have forsaken Christ, they're absolutely not one whit better than these ancient Israelites of the Old Kingdom whom God despised and put off for their sins. But he warned them that they would indeed sin in that manner if they allowed the Canaanites to live amongst them. They allowed it, and look where it got them. And today, with the emancipation of the Jews in Europe, at the beginning of the 19th century, we allowed it again. And look at where we are. Back to Luther. As we said, God did not institute circumcision 
Nor did he accept the Jews as his people in order that they might persecute, mock, and murder his word and his prophets, and thereby render a service to justice and to God. Rather, as Moses says in the words dealing with circumcision in Genesis 17, this was done in order that they might hear God in his word. That is, that they might let him be their God. Apart from this, circumcision in itself would not help them, since it would no longer be God's circumcision, for it would be without God, contending against his word. It would have become merely a human work, for he had bound himself, or his word, to circumcision. Where these two part company, circumcision remains a hollow husk or empty shell, devoid of nut or kernel. Well, Jerusalem and not Israel is accredited with having killed the prophets by Christ. And in Luke chapter 11, Christ lays this charge to the descendants of Cain. And that's corroborated in John chapter 8. Only Cain can be charged with having killed Abel, which is corroborated in John chapter 8. Luther didn't understand the mystery of iniquity operating in ancient Israel, which is absolutely clear in Jeremiah chapter 2. In Jeremiah chapter 24, that these Canaanite bad figs that intermingled with Israel would be the source of at least most of the trouble in Israel. As Ezekiel tells the Israelites, or I'm sorry, as Ezekiel tells the people of Jerusalem in Ezekiel chapter 16, thy mother was a Hittite, thy father was an Amorite. I might be getting that backwards, but that's basically what he's saying. Back to Luther. The following is an analogous situation for us Christians. God gave us baptism, the sacrament of his body and blood, and the keys for the ultimate purpose or final cause that we should hear his word in them and exercise our faith therein. That is, he intends to be our God through them, and through them we are to be his people. And I think that Luther's being a little ambiguous here. I don't know if he means through the word or through the rituals. However, what did we do? We proceeded to separate the word and faith from the sacrament, that is, from God and his ultimate purpose, and converted it into a mere opus legis, a work of the law, or, as the papists call it, an opus operatum, merely a human work which the priests offered to God and the laity performed as a work of obedience as often as they received it. Sacramentalism is basically a return to a reliance on rituals. It's no better than going back to the Old Testament law and the rituals that it prescribed. To continue with Luther, what is left of the sacrament? Only the empty husk, the mere ceremony, opus vanum, divested of everything divine that would be a vain work. Yes, it is a hideous abomination in which we perverted God's truth into lies and worshipped the veritable calf of Aaron. Therefore, God also delivered us into all sorts of terrible blindness and innumerable false doctrines. And furthermore, he permitted Muhammad and the Pope together with all devils to come upon us. 
Now Luther is saying that the Catholic Church wasn't properly practicing its Christian rituals, so they were punished for it. I don't think the rituals were ever Christian to begin with, but that's a matter of my opinion, I guess. It is interesting that Luther saw both Arab Islamists and Catholics as devils. That is interesting. Because they are. Back to Luther. The people of Israel fared similarly. They always divorced circumcision as an opus operatum. Their own work from the word of God and persecuted all the prophets through whom God wished to speak with them according to the terms on which circumcision was instituted. Yet despite this, they constantly and proudly boasted of being God's people by virtue of their circumcision. Thus they are in conflict with God. God wants them to hear him and to observe circumcision properly and fully. But they refuse and insist that God respect their work of circumcision. That is, half of circumcision indeed. The husk of circumcision. God, in turn, refuses to do this, and so they move farther and farther apart, and it is impossible to unite, to reunite or reconcile them. Well, the Jews never belonged to God. They were Edomites and Canaanites, so they couldn't be reconciled to God. But Luther does do well where he compares the form to the substance and chooses the value of the substance over the value of the form. That's admirable, but I cannot agree that any rituals can possibly have any saving grace. I don't care if you want to call it a Christian ritual or a Levitical ritual. It's still a ritual and an attempt at salvation by works. Luther, he, he understood that salvation couldn't be by works, but he still seems to have a tendency to legitimize Christian rituals, which I can't agree with. Now, who wishes to accuse God of an injustice? Tell me, anyone who is reasonable, whether it is fitting that God regard the works of those who refuse to hear his word, or if he should consider them to be his people when they do not want to regard him as their God. With all justice and good reason, God may say, as the psalm declares, Psalm 81.11, Israel would have none of me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. And in Deuteronomy 32.21, Moses states, They have stirred me to jealousy with what is no God, so I will stir them to jealousy with those who are no people. Well, Luther has this backwards, because true Israel is stirred to jealousy by the Jews, who aren't the people. The promise of God is that the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isaiah 35.10 And none of these are Jews. God is not a failure. He has avowed that Israel shall be his people and shall return to him and none of them are Jews. Luther was one of those people. He was certainly a child of Israel. And not a Jew. But he didn't know it. To return to Luther. 
Similarly, among us Christians, the Papists, Luther was, of course, very um, derogatorily speaking of Roman Catholics. Similarly, among us Christians, the Papists can no longer pass for the Church, for they will not let God be their God, because they refuse to listen to His Word, but rather persecute it most terribly. Then come along with their empty husks, chaff, and refuse, as they hold Mass and practice their ceremonies, and God is supposed to recognize them and look upon them as his true church, ignoring the fact that they do not acknowledge him as the true God. That is, they do not want him to speak to them through his preachers. His word must be accounted heresy, the devil, and every evil. This he will indeed do, as they will surely experience far worse than did the Jews. In other words, Luther understood that the Roman Catholic Church had forsaken the word of God and they replaced it with ceremonies and rituals and pomp. And that is true. The church of Luther's time had already been usurped by Jews. The Pope, when Luther wrote this, was Alessandro Farnese. He was called Pope Paul III. Farnese was a humanist who received his adult education at the University of Pisa and at the court of Lorenzo de' Medici. He was tied into the de' Medici's. He wasn't one of them, but he was in bed with them. Back to Luther. Now we can readily gather from all this that circumcision was very useful and good. As St. Paul declares, not indeed on its own account, but on account of the word of God. For we are convinced, and that it, it is the truth, that the children who were circumcised on the eighth day became children of God. As the words state, I will be their God. Genesis 17.7 For they received the perfect and full circumcision, the word with the sign, and did not separate the two. God is present, saying to them, I will be their God. And this completed the circumcision in them. Similarly, our children receive the complete, true, and full baptism, the word with the sign, and do not separate one from the other. They receive the kernel in the shell. God is present, he baptizes and speaks with them, and thereby saves them. Well, Luther, but Luther basically resorted, because he was a universalist, resorted to a salvation by works. That God would be your God if you got yourself circumcised. That God would be your God if you got yourself baptized. He didn't recognize it, and he rejected the idea of salvation by works, but he still promoted the idea of salvation by works because he refused to see that it was salvation by works. But on one hand or the other, that's what he's espousing here. Circumcision did not make one a child of God. Baptism does not make one a child of God. Adam was the son of God. And there is no record that he was ever circumcised or baptized. Abraham was justified apart from circumcision, as Paul explains in the epistle to the Romans. 
Rather, circumcision was a sign of obedience demanded by God, by which those who were children of God would be recognized as children of God. That's the piece that Luther is missing. All of the Adamic race, as Paul of Tarsus himself agrees with the Athenian poets in Acts chapter 17, all of the Adamic race are children of God, all the descendants of Adam. And Paul explains that in Romans chapter 5. And Luke professes it in Luke 3.38. But that doesn't mean because you're a physical child of God that God recognizes you as one of his children. That is the position of sons. That Greek word, huiothesia, that the King James Version wrongly translates as adoption. It belongs exclusively to the children of Israel. Those of the children of Israel who accept Christ, according to the gospel, are granted that position of sons, according to the Apostle Paul. They are recognized by God as children. You could be a child and not be recognized by your father unless you agree to your father's rules. That was what Yahweh gave us the circumcision for as a sign of the covenant that we be obedient to his laws. We would submit to circumcision and thereby be recognized as children of God. But circumcision does not make one a son of God. Christian baptism, if we were to practice it, would not make one a son of God. Not at all. And Luther didn't understand that. Back to Martin Luther in the concluding paragraph of this presentation. But now that we have grown old, the Pope comes along and the devil with him and teaches us to convert this into an opus legis, or work of the law, or opus operatum. He severs word and sign from each other, teaching that we are saved by our own contrition, work, and satisfaction. We share the experience related by St. Peter in 2 Peter 2.22. The dog turns back to his own vomit, and the sow is washed only to wallow in the mire. Thus, our sacrament has become a work, and we eat our vomit again. Likewise, the Jews, as they grow old, ruined their good circumcision performed on the eighth day, separated the word from the sign, and made a human or even a swinish work out of it. In this way, they lost God and his word and now no longer have any understanding of the scriptures. And, and, and Luther is doing good for recognizing the substance over the form, the value of the substance over the performance of a ritual. One of the primary subjects of Luther's famous 95 Theses was an argument against indulgences.
and Luther professed that indulgences were wrong because Christ died once for all sin and no man could improve on his cleansing grace. That was the basis of Luther's argument. Luther did well to understand that and therefore he knew that there was no salvation by works. The part Above all, that he was blind to understand, however, was that Christ came to redeem only those who were under the law, as Paul explains in Galatians chapter 4. And therefore, only Israel could be saved. Luther did not know who Israel was, and that forced him into a universalist position because he accepted the lies of the Jews. If you think the Jews are Israel, you're not going to go looking for true Israel. That's for certain. That'll conclude tonight's presentation. I will be back here next week with Martin Luther on the Jews and their lies, part six, next Saturday. Next Friday night, perhaps the conclusion to my presentation of the prophecy of Micah, Micah part 6 is it part 6 or perhaps it's no it's part 5 I'm sorry I lost count praise Yahweh the God of true Israel damn the Jews and thank you for listening good night